Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We are beginning our survey of the entire Bible. And like I said last week, the point of this class is that in the next three months, if you come regularly or listen online, you will be able to open your Bible to any page and have some sense of where you are, not be completely lost. And that includes Old Testament, which can be difficult at times. To that end, we've broken the Bible up into various parts. The whole thing is a united whole, but we are going to look at one piece of it at a time, according to the English ordering of the books in the Old Testament. And so both for the English ordering and for the Jewish or Hebrew ordering, the first five books are the first five books. And that's what we're looking at today. Here they are. The Pentateuch. If you don't know, this is, if you have your Bible, and you will probably want to have a Bible with you. We're not going to always stop and look at particular verses just because we can't. But I hope you'll have a Bible with you. I've got mine here. I'm going to have it open in front of me, even if we're not stopping at places. But I want you to be familiar with your Bible. So whatever Bible you do your Bible reading in or you use regularly. Oh yeah, and if you don't have a handout, Darren will get you one if you raise your hand. Whatever Bible you use, whether that's on your phone or device, that's totally fine. Or if it's a physical Bible, you will probably want to bring that Bible here for this class. Because you need to get familiar with your physical Bible or your digital Bible that you'll be using. So anyways, if you've got a Bible, most of you probably know this, but we'll, we'll assume not everyone always does. Front pages, you've got a table of contents. Very helpful. Like I said last week, you should memorize the order of the books of the Bible. Do it with a song. It's way easier. So go YouTube, Google a song for the books of the Bible and learn these. But if you need to reference them time to time, turn to the beginning of your Bible and you'll find the contents. So if you look there, you'll see the first five in the Old Testament. So Bible's Old and then New Testament. First five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Or... As one of my sisters said when she was three and learning these books with us, Minamanamu. So you can call it Deuteronomy, Minamanamu, whatever you want. But these are the first five books, and they are called the Pentateuch. I've put up there, for your help, several other things these books are sometimes called. So sometimes they're called the book or the books of Moses. The reason is because Moses wrote them. So Jesus calls them the book of Moses, or says, Moses says, and then we'll quote them. Another word for them is the Torah, or Torah. That's just the Hebrew word for law. And in the Hebrew ordering, these five books are the first part of the Tanakh. They're the Torah, the law. So you could also use the English word law. And sometimes Jesus will refer it to that way, the law of Moses, the book of Moses. And quote any of these five, because a lot of it's made up of law, as you'll see. Who wrote it? Of everyone who's going to teach, maybe? Well, of most. I've got the easiest job in giving you the background information of these five books when it comes to who wrote it. It's Moses. There is uh, volumes of books by very intelligent scholars, not believers for the most part, who are adamant that it's a compilation of a million sources from a million imagined places 
because I don't want Moses to have written it. <laughs> Jesus says Moses did so. There's a few parts you'll find that someone had to add later, like Moses' death. He didn't write that about himself. But for the most part, this is Moses. So see how easy that is? Wow. If you just believe Jesus, life is so much easier. And then the when, traditionally we believe Moses lived around 1400 BC. So a little thing that might be helpful for you to bear in mind, if you just think timeline of the Bible, think around, think in 500 periods, 500 year periods. If you go back about, I think it's 2000, maybe someone can correct me, but I think if you go around 2000, we're talking Abraham. And then you go around 1500, 500 years later, we're talking Moses. You go 500 to 1,000, we got David. 500 years, you've got the exile off into Babylon. And then 500 years, you got Jesus. So you see that? That's, it's not exact, but kind of helps you get a feel. So 2,000, Abraham, 1,500, Moses, 1,000, David, 500, exile, and then Jesus. So that puts us around 1,500, really 1,400 is Moses. So this is probably the oldest book, except maybe Job, who knows, probably the oldest book you read, or you've ever read, unless you like ancient classics. But that's older than Homer, so that's pretty old. All right. The Pentateuch is somewhat like the Gospels of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the foundation of the New Testament. They tell the story of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Notice, there's multiple books telling you the same story with some overlap. But then everything else in the New Testament is just expanding on or reflecting on what happened in the Gospels. So you have in Acts a little more history after Jesus goes to heaven. And then in the letters, explanation of what did Jesus just accomplish? The Old Testament is not that different. And you can think of the Pentateuch as similar to the Gospels. The Gospels are the essential history and everything flows from it. In the Old Testament, the Pentateuch is the essential history of what God does, and everything flows out of it. So you have, just like Acts with the Gospels, a little more history, so we'll get into a little more history later, coming out of this, but always reflecting back on these five books. And then in the prophets and in the wisdom literature, it's like the letters of the New Testament, reflecting on mainly what's contained in these five books and how it plays out. So, I'm not just making this important because it's what I'm teaching, <laughs> but I promise this is, um, I don't know if you can say the most important part of the Old Testament, but it's foundational to everything. And really, transition to Genesis now, the first of them, Genesis itself, if you had to pick one book of the Old Testament that prepares you, not just for the rest of the Old Testament, but for the rest of the whole Bible and the rest of human history, everything, it is the book of Genesis. So let's jump in to Genesis. First, I'm going to give you a summary, then an outline. The summary I gave you last week on that page, if you have it, the two-sided page, but I'll repeat it here. Here's the summary of what's going to happen in Genesis. God creates the world and puts man on it. Chapters 1 and 2. Man sins, brings death into the world in chapter 3. People spread out into various nations, it's chapters 4 through 11, and then 12 to 50 is God calls one man Abraham and promises that through his descendants, talked about seed or Zorah, 
last week, all the nations will be blessed. So here's the outline for you. The word Genesis means beginning, no matter how you slice it. So we call it Genesis. It's from the Greek Genesis, and it means beginning. The Hebrew name for this book, most Hebrew books of the Old Testament are named after just the first word in the book. That's an easy way to name the book. It's called Bereshit, which means in the beginning. It's the first word. So this is the beginning of the beginning. The outline, what I've tried to do, and you can um, poke fun at this, that's fine. But in this class, we're not interested in getting into some deep scholarly understanding of all the debates that are happening. I'm trying to give you some memorable ways to know how to navigate the Pentateuch for yourself. You go study it, read some good commentaries. So you're going to see a lot of alliteration, which is using the same first letter like good Baptists do. We're not Baptists, but we're doing it. So here you have Genesis broken in half with two Ps. You can remember that. And what you have to remember is that chapter 12 is the turning point. And even if you forget it, when you read Genesis, you'll know it because that's where Abraham comes in. The first 11 chapters we call primeval history. Primeval. And all we mean by primeval, think of prime meaning first. Primeval is a word that means the earliest, earliest history. Just like medieval comes later. Primeval. So chapters 1 through 11 are primeval history. The earliest history in the world. The literal genesis of the world. And then from 12 to 50, you have the patriarchs. And I know that the word patriarchy has a very bad rap today and has a lot of politics with it and everything. All we mean by the patriarchs is these are the fathers of the Jewish nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's what 12 through 50 are about. And then Joseph after that. So there you go. Now you know Genesis. But let's look in a little more detail. We'll do this for each of the books. So let's start with the primeval history Chapters 1 through 11. If you want to be flipping through your Bible, scrolling through to see the headings in your Bible, it's a good way to get an overview too. You're welcome to do that. So if we break down 1 through 11, what do you need to know about this to read it? You probably know that the first two chapters are some of the most important chapters in the Bible. They're the creation of the world. Again, hotly contested points, but these were just six days. I mean, I don't know how God could make it clear, and Dan did a great job sure last semester teaching on the creation, but some people want to view it as poetry and so forth. But it says there's evening and there's morning. And I know there weren't stars yet. Okay, go listen to Dan's class. Very good. In six days, God creates the whole world. That's chapter one of Genesis. Now, when you flip over to chapter two, you might be a little confused in your Bible reading because you went, well, I thought he finished, but now he's making man again, <laughs> a second time. But that's because chapter two stops zooms in on day six and focuses on the creation of man. Because even in chapter one, everything builds up to the creation of us because we're made in God's image unlike anything else and the world is made inhabitable for us. Chapter two zooms in on the creation of Adam. You have marriage instituted. You have God's cultural mandate that we should multiply, that we should work. So this is a foundation of the world, the genesis of the whole world still applies today. And marriage is at the end of that. God creates Eve. But chapter 3, and I, we've got a little 
storybook Bible I go through with my kids, uh, the big picture storybook Bible. Some of you maybe have that. It's got big pictures in it all the way through it. And you get to the end of the first chapter, God makes the world, Adam and Eve look so happy. And you flip over, and we only do one chapter a day, so you flip over and it's got just the chapter heading and a little picture of a snake. And when we do that, Emmett goes, oh no, <laughs> oh no, <His. laughs> he's right. So in chapter three, you have a snake. And there's a lot, again, we can't get into details, but even poetically, when it says the very end of chapter two, it says Adam and Eve were naked. And when you get to the next, it says, now the snake, immediate next verse, chapter three, the snake was more clever. And the word clever is the same as the word naked. It's a homonym, homophone, homonym, I don't know. It's the same word, okay? But it means both. So anyways, you can see there's artistry. We're just not touching on it. Okay, then you get to the snake. Revelation tells us the serpent of old was the devil, but you already suspected that. And he tricks Eve. She's given one command, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but she does it, the serpent serpent says, you'll be smart like God. And she sees, oh, that fruit looks good. Disobeys. The world is plunged into sin. And there is a triple curse, curse on the snake, curse on the woman with childbearing, curse on the man with laboring. But part of the reason we look at Genesis as prefiguring the whole Bible is because here in chapter 3 in verse 15, you have what we call the proto-evangelion, the pre-gospel, because in chapter 3, verse 15, as God's cursing that snake, telling him, you're going to slither around, you don't get feet, you know, but speaking to Satan, who inhabits the snake, he says, you're going to have a seed, a descendant, and the woman's going to have a descendant, but the woman's descendant's going to smash your head, and you're going to bite his heel, Zerah, seed. So that starts the Zorah theme, the seed theme that's going to go through the rest of Genesis and the Bible. That's in the fall. God clothes Adam and Eve, sends them away. So now that you're through one through three in your Bible reading, and here's the good thing. I was thinking about this. If you're like me, you know, you start a Bible reading plan <laughs> with ambition, and uh, it might pitter out in Leviticus or Numbers or whatever. But, so then you read it again. So Michaela and I feel like we've read Genesis a million times. The good thing is... It's so foundational that if you've read it a million times, that's not so bad. It's going to help you. If you've read the first three chapters, you're ready for the rest of human history. You've got why the world has so much in it that's so good, Genesis 1 and 2. Why does the world have so much in it that's so bad, Genesis chapter 3, and is God going to do anything about it, verse 15. All right, Cain and Abel, chapter 4, you know the story, that was Adam and Eve's children, and Cain killed Abel. If we look at Genesis as focused on the seed, that's the main theme throughout it, then verse 15 of chapter 3 said this promised seed is going to fix everything and crush the snake. So then you think, oh, it's going to be Cain or it's going to be Abel because they're the seed, they're the descendant. But then you see that Abel, the righteous descendant, is killed by the unrighteous. Sets you up for the rest of human history where the unrighteous will persecute the righteous. That's part of why that's in chapter 4. Hope you know. Chapters 5 through 10, following what you can already tell in Cain and Abel's story, things are going to get bad. And they do, very bad, to where the whole earth is filled with violence after many generations. Lots of people on it, but they're very evil. So God brings judgment by sending a flood. It's not a local flood. It floods the whole earth. 
and everyone dies except Noah and his family whom God spares. Again, pointing forward to salvation through judgment, which we'll see in Jesus. And God in Noah, notice, he doesn't wipe out the whole seed because he made a promise. He preserves the seed or descendant. It's in Noah and his children. After that, they come back. Chapter 11 is Babel just showing you, hey, things still stink on earth. They're still horrible. Even after God now has made a rainbow and a covenant and a promise that he's not going to send another flood, but it's not because we got good or anything. We're still bad. In Babel, you have the languages and people spread out to inhabit the earth really with their badness. Good job. That's the first one. Now we move into the patriarchs, which continues really the theme of seed or descendant. We're looking for the promised descendant. These are the line leading to that descendant. First, you have Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham was promised that he would have a what? A seed. Abraham originally was out in Mesopotamia worshiping idols, and God, looking at this corrupt earth, calls Abraham freely by his grace, says, hey, come on, go to the land I tell you. Abraham goes, and God tells him, he says, you're going to have a seed, a descendant, which on the one hand means many sons, large nation will come from you, many nations. But on the other hand, the word seed can be used for many, but it's also, it's a singular word, Paul will point out in Galatians. So God's promising him many descendants, and even today there are many Jews, but through those descendants, he's also promising him one seed who's going to crush the serpent's head. And he says, through that seed, you're going to get a land for that seed to live on, and through that seed, I'm going to bless the whole world, all the nations. That's the promise that prepares you for the whole Bible. That is what we call the covenant with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant, if you want to impress your friends. So that's the covenant God makes in chapter 12 and three times he reaffirms it with Abraham in this story. And it's, again, just carrying on the theme of we're waiting for the seed. Isaac is Abraham's son. And you will notice in really the whole story of Genesis there's an emphasis on the fact that God is preserving the seed. It's not random. How do we know that? Well, two things that'll stand out to you in your Genesis reading. One is that the seed is often threatened. Abraham has a child with the servant Hagar. Shouldn't have happened. It was a mark of unbelief. It was not good. It's not good. It's not good. Shouldn't have happened. And it threatened the seed because Ishmael, who came from that, was not going to be the seed of promise. But God, very faithful, says, no, 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 no. Not with Hagar, with your wife. Even though she's 90, she's going to have the child like I promised. You have to believe it. And Abraham did believe it. And God counted it to him as righteousness. But there are times where the seed is threatened. You've got Jacob and Esau. Esau's the firstborn. So the lineage should go through him. What's going to happen? God uses a messed up situation, as we'll see. So you see that it's God doing it. You see, it's God doing it because many times the promised seed, which you expect to go through the firstborn, doesn't. Many times it goes through the secondborn or a laterborn, which is not normal, but it's God's specific doing. Jacob have I loved, not Esau, but Esau was the firstborn. Should have been him. This is to show it's God graciously preserving the seed. God's doing it. We're acting in it, but it's God doing it. Another reason you know it's God graciously doing it in Genesis 
is because you'll see many, many of the women who give birth to the promised line are at first barren, or if you're Sarah, too old to have children. It's impossible. So that's preparing you even all the way for Mary in the New Testament, where it's literally God is bringing the seed. It's not just normal, not by the will of man or the will of flesh, by the will of God. He's accomplishing it. So you'll see that in Genesis. Isaac doesn't have a long story. Um, if more happens before and after him, but he's part of the promised seed. And then you've got Jacob here, who's renamed Israel. And from him come the 12 tribes of Israel. Don't have time to go into that, but Jacob was, like Abraham and Isaac before him, not so great in some ways. He was a deceiver, but God was faithful to him because he was bringing his promised line through him. One of Jacob's sons is named Joseph, one of the very youngest, second to youngest. And Joseph is not a patriarch, but you got to have the Joseph story to get ready for Exodus. Because you got to know by the time of Exodus, why are the people of Israel who were in the land of Canaan and multiplying, why are they now in Egypt as slaves? Well, the story of Joseph, he goes down there. God uses him to save everybody from a famine. But that leads to Jacob and his family, his oldest children and grandchildren, 70 people going down to Egypt. So then you're ready for Exodus. How are we feeling? That's a lot. You, you got that? You ready to read Genesis? You excited to read Genesis? There's a lot in there that's odd. But you've got to remember, Genesis is not about the people doing the weird things. Genesis is about God doing the right thing, even when the people are weird. All right. So, continuing the idea of the seed and the promise, again, another threat to it. Because now the descendants God promised to Abraham are here. There's a lot of them. They multiplied, but they're enslaved by the Egyptians. There we go. Here's the summary of Exodus. <clears throat> Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, from Israel, as Jacob's renaming, have been made slaves to the Egyptians because Joseph went down there, so they went down there. God sends Moses and through him brings the Israelites out of slavery, giving them a law and promising them land. These are the books of Moses. So you read Genesis, you go, where's Moses at? <laughs> it's not there yet. It's Abraham's 2000 BC. Fast forward about 400 years really, and you get now to Moses. This is where he comes in, in the Exodus. Here is your alliterated outline. Chapters 1 through 19, liberation. And chapters 20 through 40, laws. So primeval, patriarchs, liberation, laws. And you just have to remember, just like in Genesis, you've got to remember that Abraham appears in chapter 12. So that splits the book up. Here you've got to remember, where are the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20. So that splits the book up. So just remember that. All right, let's look more in focus. Starting with liberation, the first half of the Exodus, which is one of the more, usually the interesting part, immediately speaking, because it's a story, and we like stories. And this is a story of the greatest salvation accomplished in the whole world, except for the salvation that Jesus accomplished. And the reason for that is the Exodus, more than any other Old Testament story, points us forward to the salvation that Jesus would bring into the world. So God is, he's smart, he's brilliant, and he 
planned all of this to point forward. So we need to see a great salvation and that's what we see. Chapter 1 really sets the stage for us. It tells us the people multiplied down in Egypt where Joseph had taken them. And many years later, the Egyptians forgot that the Israelites literally saved their lives. And so they see there's so many of them, they go, we better enslave them or they might join our enemies and attack us. So now you've got a lot of Israelites, a lot of seed of Abraham, hooray, except what? They're slaves. Where's the blessing? Where's the land? God is going to fulfill that promise. Chapter 2, here's how he's going to do it. Moses is born, and you know the famous story. One of the many cruelties the Egyptians accomplished against their slaves was they decided there's too many, kill all the boys. But by faith, we're told, Moses' parents, when he's born, they see he's a beautiful child. They don't want him to die. They hide him. He gets too old to hide anymore. They put him in a little basket, and they stick him on the Nile. Can you imagine doing that to your child? And then they just pray he survives. But God is faithful to his promises. And so Moses is found by Pharaoh's own daughter. Who would have known it? And so he is drawn out of the water, and that's what the name Moses means, drawn out. <clears throat> then you have Moses going into the land in these early chapters of Egypt, and he sees his fellow countrymen, Jewish people, being mistreated, and he ends up killing an Egyptian. So then he's got to book it out into the wilderness so he doesn't die. So he's a fugitive. He goes into the wilderness for 40 years. Is it 40 years out there? He's 40. Yeah, no, because he's 40 when he runs. And he's out there 40 years. So you'll read it in like one paragraph. <laughs> Easy for you to do. He had to live out there for 40 years eating bugs or whatever you do out there. So he's out there for 40 years. And at the end of that, when he's 80 years old, then he goes onto a mountain. There's a burning bush. God is going to save his people. He speaks to Moses through the burning bush, says, hey, remember last time when you tried to save the people by killing an Egyptian and you totally failed? <laughs> We're going to try again. So this time I'm going to be with you and you're going to succeed. So go on down, tell Pharaoh again. So my children love, most kids love this part of the story. Let my people go. <laughs> and our little storybook Bible's got Pharaoh putting his fingers in his ears. He won't listen. He says, no, 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 no. But he will regret that because then in chapters 4 through 13, God hardens Pharaoh's heart because he wants to show a great salvation. And you have what we call the 10 plagues. And you know these frogs, bugs, darkness, the Nile turns to blood. It's a miserable thing. This is irrelevant, but I always laugh because I thought this even the other day reading it. You know, the magicians of Pharaoh can copy some of these things. They turn water into blood. They can make frogs come out of the Nile. <laughs> I always laugh because they're making the problem worse. <laughs> you know, really what Pharaoh needs is for them to put the frogs back in the Nile. But they're like, aha, we can make more frogs, not helping anybody. And eventually they recognize this is the finger of God. We can't stop this. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. And he is. So now it's a showdown. God, Yahweh, I am, he presents himself. Yahweh, the true God, versus Pharaoh. So you like I don't know. Do you like Marvel movies? I don't watch them. It's fine if you like those. Okay. But you know the exciting part, especially as a guy, it's fine if you're a girl too. The exciting part is the music gets intense and there's the hero 
And usually the way it works is he's been defeated once before, but now he's come back. So there he is, the hero, and there's that villain who beat him last time, and there they are, and the music picks up, and they look at each other, zooms in on the eyes, and they're ready to fight. And that's what you have in the Exodus. It's God stretching out his arm, Pharaoh stretching out his arm, and you're going to see whose breaks. The answer is Pharaoh's. God does 10 plagues. The last one, he kills the firstborn, and finally the people get to go. Chapter 14, they get to the Red Sea. The Egyptians chase him, want to kill him, and God shows, hey, look what I can do. And he spreads the ocean apart, and the people go through the water just like Moses did early on, drawn from the water. And then 15 through 19 is the journey after they've been delivered. The Egyptians were smashed in the Red Sea, and they go to Mount Sinai. I can't take this much time on the whole thing, but that's not fair because there's, you don't know how much I'm cutting out. You do know because you read your Bible, but anyways, journey to Sinai, they're free. That's the point. Liberation. But that's not the end of the book of Exodus. Oh, no, it's still back. Yeah, no, that's right. It's not the end because they journey to Mount Sinai. And Sinai is where they receive from God laws. This is why we call this the book of the law, the law of Moses, because they get laws. Here's a little closer breakdown of it. Chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Think of these, if you will, like the Constitution of the United States. These are the fundamental principles of what it means for Israel to now be in a Mosaic covenant with God. It's the fundamental stuff. Then you have, after that, a lot more laws. But those laws are like case laws in the U.S., which are based on the Constitution, ideally. So you have the Constitution leading to case laws. So that's what you have in Israel. Ten Commandments are like the Constitution. Fundamental things. And then after that, you have the case law. So even right after you have the Ten Commandments, you've probably noticed you've got all these other laws thrown in. You go, wait a minute. I thought it was Ten Commandments. This is what we call the covenant code. So there you have some more rules that are given afterward. So up until 24, you've got rules, laws, and there's going to be more of those. But once you get to 25, they're given something else very important. God has not really thoroughly dwelt with his people in a clear, manifest way since the Garden of Eden because people are sinful. So when people see God, he's sending a flood, you know. People are sinful. Now God is working to reverse that, beginning to, by giving a tabernacle, a place where he will manifest his presence with his people. He's working a salvation. He's crushing the head of the serpent who got him kicked out of the garden. And so you have the blueprint of the tabernacle. So listen, here's my charge to you. You get to 25 in Exodus. You just read the great Exodus. Wow. And you get to 25 and your engines might start sputtering because you're learning about how many clasps there are on the tent to clasp together and it repeats it. Just keep pushing through. It's there for a reason. And I can't go into what that reason is, but read Hebrews and you'll know. Chapters 32 to 34 are a little bit of a pause on the tabernacle just to show you, oh, God is going to be with his people, but don't forget they're really bad. And 32 to 34... Moses is up on the mountain getting this wonderful law, and the people are like, oh, we don't know where Moses went, so you know what? Let's make a golden calf, because I bet God would love that, and let's say that that's our God that got us out of Egypt, even though it's not. 
It's literally up there in a tornado on the mountain. But let's just make a golden calf and say that it did it. So when Moses comes back down, he finds idolatry. Already they're breaking the law. Already they're breaking the covenant. And then it goes back to the tabernacle being built. You can see here the groundwork being laid for what Paul will say, which is the law is righteous and good. It's wonderful. But it can't save you because you and I are like Israel. We're very rebellious. And our flesh takes advantage of that. And we need a savior, a seed, one might say, to crush the serpent. All right, there you go. You made it through Exodus. Good job. Genesis and Exodus, you know what's going on. You've got the foundation laid for God in the world, for the salvation he's prefiguring in the Exodus, for this covenant, this law he's making with his people through Moses. You've come a long way, really. So don't give up in Leviticus. Don't do it. You push through the end of Exodus, and there was some challenges there with the clasps. But you get into Leviticus. Leviticus will make a lot more sense if you know just a few things about it. If you go in cold turkey, you're going to wonder why they're taking out lobes of livers and doing all kinds of stuff. So you need to know just a little bit about it. And why don't I tell you, since you're here, here it is. Here's the summary of what Leviticus is all about. This is it. Because God is holy... His people, the Israelites, must also be holy. And you can think of that as meaning set apart. God is different. He's the only God who is, so that makes him different. He's pure, morally pure, good, seeks his own glory, all of this. God is holy. So now, if he's made a covenant with the, the descendants of Abraham, they've got to reflect that. And they do it in a concrete way by being different from everybody else. And because God's holy, they got to do sacrifices too so he doesn't destroy them because he's holy. Can't have nastiness there. So they have to be holy. So laws are given for their ceremonial purity, meaning sort of rituals. You don't have to do them today. You don't have to kill animals. Don't go kill them and sacrifice them. You don't have to do that. But they did in the Old Covenant. Here's the outline. It's this. I know it's not the same letter, but it's making the same sound. So it still alliterates. See that? So... Chapters 1 through 16 are sacrifices. Chapters 17 to 27, ceremonies. And I indented it incorrectly just for the type A out there. I really wanted to frustrate you. Just kidding. It's correct in my notes. Okay. Sacrifices. And when you get to chapter 17, you're going to have ceremonies. Honestly, Leviticus is a little harder to get an outline of. A lot of it is mixed together. Same with Numbers and Deuteronomy. Because it's not as focused on history. It's more about the laws. So we'll do the best we can with them. So let's look at the sacrifices. 1 through 16. When you read the first seven chapters, it's going to tell you this is what you do for a guilt offering. This is what you do if you've sinned and you didn't know you sinned. This is what you do if you sinned and you didn't know you sinned. This is what you do if this happens. You've got really the five kinds of offerings. I won't be able to name them all. Something like a guilt offering, a sin offering, a peace offering, a grain offering, and another offering that I've... Drink? Wave. wave. A wave offering. They do drink offerings as well. But a wave offering. Good. Look at you guys. So the five offerings, and this is again, the people we've seen are unholy. They're bad. They're sinful. They're going to fail. How's God not going to destroy them? Here's a temporary provision. The life is in the blood their blood should be spilled because they're sinning against God. 
So God, as a temporary provision, says, you spill the blood of the animals instead, and I will take that temporarily as a way to say, I'm not going to destroy. I will pass over those sins. But only because they point forward to the greatest sacrifice, that is, Jesus. Then you have in 8 through 10, Aaron, Moses' brother, he and his family are the priests. So you have the institution of the priesthood because, look, somebody's got to be killing all the animals and taking the lobes of the livers and doing all of the stuff God requires, and that's the job of the priests. 11 through 15, you have purity laws that apply to all the people. What do you do if you've got a skin disease? So some of these are very practical, but it's, again, even the ones that are practical, it's not about the practical side so much. It's about ceremonial purity. God is not unduly angry at people with skin diseases or anything like that. This is God demonstrating concretely that he's holy and they should be holy. Chapter 16 is important. It is the Passover, which was instituted in the 10th plague back in Exodus, but it's rehearsed here. It's supposed to be observed every year, and it is still today by Jews. All right, that's the sacrifices. Then you get into some ceremonies. Chapters 17 to 25 are various rules. I don't know how better to outline it without putting a million things up there. So they kind of jump around, but it's a lot of rules. Chapter 26, blessings and curses. We'll see that again. So basically, look, obey these rules. You'll be blessed by God. Don't do it. You'll be cursed. Spoiler alert, they don't. So they need Jesus to come and give a blessing to them. And lastly, there's a chapter on vows. If you struggle with Leviticus, you say, this is a long book about the insides of animals and about skin diseases and things. Maybe this will help you. Bear this in mind. Did God want us to have Leviticus? The second greatest commandment for you in your life, your whole life, according to Jesus, is that you should love your neighbor the way you love yourself. That summarizes everything you're required to be as a Christian toward others. Everything. Do you know what book of the Bible Jesus was quoting when he gave that commandment? Leviticus. Wow. So Jesus knew Leviticus because he quotes it and found it important because he pulls out the most important command toward each other. So read Leviticus. Don't skip it. Don't skip it. I know there's some who skip that. Don't do that. Numbers. All right. There's only two left. Numbers in Deuteronomy. Leviticus was sort of at pause. There's no history in Leviticus. So Genesis and Exodus, you see the flow of history, the seed. They come out of the land. They go to Sinai. You hit pause at Leviticus. God says, here's some rules so you can be pure and holy. And we're hitting play again when we get into Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's how you have to think of it. Numbers, here's the summary. The Israelites experience in the wilderness. So they're leaving Sinai, going now to the, they got the law. They made the covenant with God. They're going now to the land God promised Abraham that he'd give his seed, his descendants. So it's on their way in the wilderness. And then there are several rules for the nation and census numbers. Those will get you, but those are important, again, because of seed. Got to trace the lineage to Jesus. Here's the outline. You could break it up in other ways, but to me, this seems the easiest. The first 25 chapters of the book focus on the old generation, the ones who came out of uh, Egypt originally, and they all die in the wilderness. And then chapters 26 to 36 is their children, the new generation that actually goes into the land. Let's break that down. Old generation. The first 10 chapters, they're not going anywhere. They're getting ready to go. 
So the first, I think, four, is it the first four chapters here are census information? It's important. You knew it. It's, the book's called Numbers, so don't complain. You knew there's going to be some numbers in there. So they're going to tell you numbers of who's out there. This is the numbers of the old generation. So it'll do that for several chapters. The rest of it is, again, preparing the people, rehearsing some laws, getting ready. We're going to leave Sinai. We're going to the land of promise. It's like going to Disneyland, right? You're excited. They're excited. We got our law. We're ready to go. So chapters 11 and 12 is their journey toward the promised land. And they get right on the edge of the promised land. Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea. I mean, it's right on the cusp. God's about to fulfill his promise to Abraham. It's exciting, but look at 1314. Oh, wow. Not a surprise here, unfortunately. Again, they rebel. The spies who are sent into the land come back. They say, whoa, we look like grasshoppers to these giants, and the cities are tough. And they're supposed to go, yeah, but we got God, and he literally opened the water, and we walked through it easy peasy. Unfortunately, only two of them say that, and the other ten spies say, Back to Egypt, <laughs> back to our meat pots and our leeks and onions. Let's go back to Pharaoh and say, hey, we're sorry. Please overlook what just happened. Welcome us back. They really want to go back. That is a rebellion. That is unbelief. And because of that unbelief toward God, God says, fine, you don't believe I can do it? I'm sending you out into the wilderness for 40 years. It's like Moses was. You go wander around until everybody in this generation dies, and I'll let your children go in. And that is what happens. 15 to 21, they're wandering. That's where you get the grumbling that you hear all the time. It's partly there. 20 to 20, 22 to 25 is an interesting story of Balaam, where this foreign prophet tries to curse the people because he's greedy and wants money, and God doesn't let him, and he blesses them instead. New generation, you, all of a sudden you get hit with another census. You thought, I thought I was done with the census, but that's because now it's the new generation. So you get a census in this new generation. So don't skip that. You need that. Chapter 26. 27 to 31. They're now in the plains of Moab. And it's the new generation. And now they're really going to go in. Right? You're getting ready to go in. And because of that, you've got preparations to enter the land for this new generation. 27 to 31. 32 is the very beginnings of it actually happening. Because Reuben and Gad, two of the tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they actually get lands before they even go in the land because they defeat some kings who attack them on the east of the Jordan before they go in. Reuben and Gad settle there. Chapter 33 is just a quick summary of all the places they went from Egypt to where they are now. 34 to 36 telling you the boundaries and the cities because literally they're about to go in. So here's the boundaries. Go on in. So you expect that they go in. But aha, you're wrong because there's one more book of the Pentateuch one of the most important, have I said most important enough today? One of the most important, we know because Jesus quotes it all the time. The book of Deuteronomy. So the people at the end of Numbers, they're getting ready to go in. You're ready to see it. You flip over, start Deuteronomy, pause, pause again. Because now you've got Moses talking to the people. The old generation died. The new generation's here. Even Moses isn't going to go in the land. But he's going to tell them a whole lot of stuff, remind them of their covenant, the law, and get them ready for Joshua, which will come next. Moses reminds Israel of God's law before they enter into the land he's promised them. Deutero means two or second. Namas is law. This is the second 
giving of the law, the reminder of the law. Because the first one was at Sinai, and this one is right before they enter the land. Here's the outline with some alliteration again. First 26 chapters is Moses reviewing. Reviewing where we've been. Reviewing our commitment to Yahweh. Don't do idols. No good. Don't date girls who do. All of that. Getting ready to go into this promised land. And then 27 to 34 is, I put reward to make it work. It's really consequences because it's rewards and punishments based on if they obey or not. Here's the last two. Home stretch. First four chapters, you're reviewing the wilderness and what happened there that you saw in Numbers. Moses speaking. Chapter 5, he reviews the Ten Commandments, goes through them again. And then 6 through 26, it's hard to break it up better than this. It's just a review of lots of rules and commandments that they've gotten and maybe some new ones. But something to keep in mind is even though I've clumped it all together as various rules, very anticlimactic, when Jesus, think of this, when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness 40 days, ooh, you see that? See that? Okay. So he's out there tempted by the devil 40 days in the wilderness, do, obeying in the way that Israel didn't. Three times he's tempted. Three times to resist it, he quotes the Old Testament. Three times he's quoting Deuteronomy. Wow. That's an amazing thing. So, you shall worship the Lord your God, serve him only. And man does not live by bread alone. That's why they got the manna. And what is the last one? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's all Deuteronomy from this section of 6 through 26, I think. So that's important. All right, now it's all reviewed. There's nothing left to do before they enter the land and you enter Joshua and the rest of the histories next week. Except for one final hurrah, one final charge from Moses, desperate for them to obey, but they're not going to, sorry. But he wants them to, and so what he does is to the people stand on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. To half the people, he recites curses. If you don't obey everything written in this book of the law, you are cursed. And the people say, amen, and seal their own fate, because they don't. And then the people stand on Mount Gerizim. If you obey, these are the blessings. And they go, hey, amen. But they don't get them because they don't obey. But Jesus will. So blessings and curses for obeying or disobeying. Then you have Moses' final little chapter 29 to 30, begging the people, choose life. He says, these commandments aren't like far away, the word of God to you. It's not like far away, some mystical thing you've got to reach enlightenment in, under some tree and figure out. I'm just giving it to you. So choose life. And that, in the New Testament, will remind us how that's what the gospel is. Jesus fulfills it. He does it. And now the message of Jesus isn't some mystical thing. You've got to have an inner experience and figure out. It's, it's clearly stated. So he's saying, choose life. And then the very end is the death of Moses. And he is succeeded by who? Joshua. So now you're ready for next week, for the histories. Good job. You guys did it. Now you can read the Pentateuch and you can love the Pentateuch. Fall in love with it. And work through the hard parts, because there's some hard parts. But Jesus valued this book so much, quoted it so much. And so if we're his followers, we should love it and value it too, especially for how it points us forward to him, prepares us for all history, and prepares us for our true sacrifice, Jesus. Let me pray. We'll be done.
Lord, thank you that we have these books. Thank you that you have provided so many teachers in the church that uh, have studied these. I think of faithful professors in seminaries. I think of uh, J. Vernon McGee, whose outlines I referenced even preparing for this. I think of those who've written commentaries, who love your word. Thank you for providing that for us. At the same time, there's nothing to compare to firsthand experience of your word. And I pray that as we hear our learning about the overview and making use of outlines, that we would just jump in, that we would jump into the Pentateuch, that we would know it. As many Jewish children memorize the whole thing, I pray that we would just read it and treasure it and know it. I pray you'd help us with the hard parts of it, the uh, disorienting parts of it. That can be difficult. Pray you'd help us to love, to love it the way that your son Jesus Christ loved it, to quote it in times of temptation, and to obey its command to love the Lord our God, a holy God, and a gracious God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.